It's wonderful to be able to uh, welcome you to another of our Sunday forums. I don't get down here often enough, and when I do get down here, I'm always delighted to see so many familiar faces of people who come to each of the forums and also new faces. So it's a wonderful gathering um, together. So thank you for your support for the Sunday forum as well. I'm Helen O'Sullivan. I'm the chaplain here at St. Paul's. And it's my pleasure to welcome on your behalf, Right Reverend Stephen Cottrell, a great friend of the Cathedral and the Forum, and we're delighted that you've returned uh, to speak to us today. Stephen is the Bishop of Chelmsford, which is our nearest diocesan neighbour. Born in Essex and educated in London, Stephen was ordained in 1985 and served his curacy in South London. He's also served as diocesan missioner in the Wakefield Diocese, and as canon pastor of Peterborough Cathedral. Before going home to Chelmsford, he was Bishop of Reading, and he has also been a member of the Archbishop of Canterbury's evangelism team. A prolific author, we were just talking about Stephen's ability to um, write and always have a book inside him. Stephen has written about Stanley Spencer's wonderful paintings of Christ in the wilderness, about Advent, about Holy Week, and about leadership. And today we'll hear about his best-selling book, How to Pray Alone with Others at Any Time and in Any Place. That's this one. And we might also hear a little bit about his two recently published books, The Sleepy Shepherd, which is a Christmas story for children, and Striking Out, a book of poems and stories from the Camino. Stephen has described himself as an experienced beginner at prayer who has never got much beyond this, I doubt that, but he says his long apprenticeship has taught him that the beginning and the end of prayer is the longing to know God and be known by God. And of course, longing was what Tricia was speaking about uh, in the Eucharist this morning as our beginning of our Advent, longing for God. So it's a wonderful um, coming together of that theme. Bishop Stephen will speak for about 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers, but we will uh, finish promptly at two o'clock. So would you please welcome Stephen Cottrell. Uh, thank you for that welcome. Sisters and brothers, it's really good to be with you. Uh, especially on this Advent Sunday, though I find myself having to break a promise that I made some years ago, which was that uh, whenever I spoke during Advent, I would always, but always, speak about the great Advent themes of death, judgment, heaven and hell. Um, uh, and I'm still, even, even as I stand here, I'm sorely tempted to tear up my script and tell you... <laughs> and tell you about those things instead. So if a little bit of death, judgment, heaven and hell slips in along the way, you'll know why. Um, I want to talk to you about prayer, and I want to emphasise what has already been said, that I really, really don't speak to you as an expert in the life of prayer. I speak to you as somebody who is an experienced beginner. You know, I'm a bit like, the, you know those people who are very good at giving up smoking. You know, because they've, they've given up 20 times. They give up, and then a few months later they go back, and then they give up. And, and I, I feel like that in the spiritual life. 
Um, I feel like somebody who, who just keeps on beginning. Um, but I hope that will be a comfort to you, um, that you're listening to somebody who's on the same page as you, and if there's a difference, it's just that I've been on the page for a very long time. If, however, you are a spiritual heavyweight, um, who's, who's, you know, I, I, we're going to scrabble around in the foothills for the next hour, okay? But if you're up on the mountaintop, I won't be at all offended if you leave at this point, okay? <laughs> um, uh, because uh, this is not for you. Um, but if, like me, you long to know God, um, and if, like me, you long to be a person of prayer, if you have come to know in your heart that prayer it is probably, no, not probably, prayer is the most important thing that we do. It is the foretaste of heaven, where we will be with God. And if you simply want to deepen um, your inhabiting of the first page, then hopefully we'll have an enjoyable hour together. And, um, and I, I am here also to shift some books. I mean, that's the main... <laughs> That's obviously the main reason I'm here. Um, certainly, as far as the bookshop's concerned, it's the main reason. And I do, I do, it's well known, I do lie awake at night um, worrying how people manage to live the Christian life without reading my books. I worry, I, wo <laughs> I, I worry about that. I mean, amazingly, some people seem to manage it, but um, I, I thought I'd start off with a, with a poem from this... I, I walked... I walked to Santiago de Compostela two years ago. It was the most glorious thing to do, and it's become quite in the news this year with that television programme about it. It was the most glorious thing. Um, don't worry, I won't talk about that for the next hour either. You can invite me back to talk about walking to Santiago. But um, I set myself the little spiritual discipline of writing a poem every day, um, a sonnet every day of the walk. And this is a good one to start with, uh, in thinking about prayer. Because the heart of prayer isn't any technique or formula or set way of doing things. The heart of prayer is the longing of the human heart to come to Christ. And that's what this poem is about. Uh, its starting point is wait. Because if you're walking to Santiago, it's a very long way, um, and then you've got to pack on your back you do find your thoughts turn to weight, especially when you're going kind of uphill in the Picos de Europa on a hot day with a pack on your back. So here's a starting point for our exploration of prayer. It's called, this poem, I know a man who carries heavy loads. I know a man who carries heavy loads for whom no weight's too sharp, nor yet too sheer, who does not ask whence such a burden came, or why it has been carried all these years, but does not share it, splitting half with half, or say, you get what you deserve, no less. It is... For ones like me, still undeserving, that he comes to shoulder and to bless. He picks up 
what you put on him and chides you with a smile if you persist in keeping what you cannot bear. His heart is strong, though not a strength incapable of weeping. O oh, come to him, if broken, burdened, sad, in holding you, this strong man's heart is glad. So, uh, I, I wish I had a more profound thing to say to you, but I can't think of anything else to say about prayer except that it is to come to the heart of Jesus. I'm going to have to now pad that out, okay, for the next 40 minutes. <laughs> but that's really all I've got to say on the subject. Um, so, to pad it out, let's think about what prayer might be but isn't. Have you ever had this experience? You're driving along the road, you know, perhaps on the motorway, you look at your petrol gauge and see that it's just beginning to tick over into the red. A sign comes up on the motorway to say, services in six miles or 63 miles. You look again at the gauge and you think, I'm sure I've been told that when it gets onto the red, there's at least a gallon left, so I can probably make it to the services 63 miles away rather than the one six miles. Is it just men who do this? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, don't mean to be, uh, I don't mean to be sexist, but, but why do we do that? Because um, it doesn't save any time, does it? Stopping in six miles will take the same amount of time as stopping in 63 miles. No time is saved by driving on to the 63 miles one, plus you are taking the very serious risk of wasting an awful lot of time if you haven't got a gallon left in your tank and you run out of petrol. But for some reason, many of us do this. We drive past the filling stations because we think we can make it a bit further. Now that is how some people think about prayer. And it's not an entirely bad way to think about prayer, but we think about prayer as filling up um, and going to church and saying our prayers and the set disciplines of prayer that some of us might follow. This is about filling up at the service station. Well, it's an okay image to prayer, but it doesn't really, doesn't really tell you what prayer is. So let's, now let's try something else. If it isn't filling up, what might it be? Um, well, um, perhaps we could do an experiment. Could we please, I've got the watch here for timer, so don't worry about the timing. Could we try for the next five minutes, okay, I'll tell you when to start, but for the next five minutes, could nobody in the room please breathe? Could we just stop breathing <laughs> for five minutes? Is that okay? Um, I'll tell you when the five minutes are up. And then we'll, perhaps we'll get into small groups. And we'll share with each other how that no breathing thing was for us. Well, clearly it's absurd. But it gets you a little bit nearer. I mean, St. Paul, in that very irritating way of his, says in the letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter, I think, um, pray all the time. Pray all the time. 
Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, I don't think he can mean do that activity that we call prayer all the time. He must mean make your life a prayer. Make your life a hymn of praise to God. Therefore, it must be much more like breathing than it is like filling up. It can't just be the occasional thing we do to, as it were, top up our spiritual tank. It must be something more like breathing, which we do all the time, and without which we would cease to be. But even that, for me, doesn't quite get us uh, to what prayer is really all about. So let me, we've tried filling up, that's okay, that's okay. Uh, the great spiritual writers talk about the need for, in the spiritual life, discipline and desire. Discipline and desire. And the, and the way I look at it is that if you're like me, on page one of the spiritual manual, you don't have much desire, then you're really going to need the discipline. Uh, if you are somebody who's on the mountaintop and constantly have a great desire... Uh, to be in the presence of God, then you probably don't need much discipline. But most of us do. So there is a sense in which filling up is a good image for prayer. Probably most of us will need some disciplined times of prayer. But not as an end in itself. The aim is to make the whole of our life a prayer, where eventually, probably for most of us not in this life, we will be completely overwhelmed by desire for God, and it will become more like breathing. But even breathing doesn't really describe what prayer is. So here now, hold on to your chairs, is my working definition of prayer. This is the best uh, definition that I can come up with. Prayer is the lover coming into the presence of the beloved and saying, I love you. That's the best definition of prayer I can come up with. Prayer is the lover coming into the presence of the beloved and saying, I love you. And the reason I like that definition of prayer is because it puts the work of prayer in the right place which is not something that we do, but something that God does in us. And I wonder whether half the reason we have difficulty with prayer, some of us, many of us, is because we still primarily think of it as something that we do. Now, we must, of course, cooperate and participate, but actually, prayer is what God does in us by the Holy Spirit, not something we do ourselves. Prayer is the lover coming into the presence of the beloved. Now the lover is God. God is the great lover who has shown his love for us in Jesus Christ and who lavishes that love upon us. That is one of the great Advent themes, that God, the great lover, is coming to the beloved. And God, the great lover, comes to the beloved and says, this is my summary of the whole Christian faith in three words, I love you. 
That is the great declaration of the Christian faith. God's great love for us declared, made manifest in Jesus Christ. And that activity that we call prayer is simply allowing God the great lover to speak, or perhaps we should say to sing, that song of love in us. And then it's the response of our hearts. Our response to God, to what God has shown us in Christ. And then we come to that amazingly helpful text, which you usefully all know by heart. I can't think why you bothered to waste an hour on a Sunday lunchtime to come and listen to me witter on about prayer, when the key text to learn everything you need to know about prayer as response to God, you already know by heart. The disciples went to Jesus and said to Jesus, teach us to pray, which I presume is why you've come along today. Teach us to pray. What exactly is prayer? How do we do it? And Jesus said, let's take it a little bit at a time. Jesus said, when you pray, say this, our Father. Now let's take it, let's just spend a little bit of time with those two words. Let's start with the word Father. Um, let's put a little footnote in so we're absolutely clear. God is neither a man nor a woman. God is neither a mother nor a father. Um, uh, there is nothing new or controversial about this, though you'd be forgiven for thinking so if you read the tabloid press. Um, God is outside of time and space, outside of human gender. We use words to describe God, but that doesn't mean to say God is what those words denote in terms of the created order. What Jesus is saying is that God is like a loving father and that we can have a relationship with God. Jesus is saying we can have ready access to God like a child has to a parent. You know, so I lead a busy life. Um, I am a bishop in the Church of England. I am a very important person. I have a seat in the House of Lords. Um, you know, I'm very, very respectable. Um, I have a diary secretary, as well as a PA. I mean, how posh is that? Um, I'm not allowed to put things into my own diary. You know, I get into big, big trouble if I try to put an entry in my own diary. But if my kids want to see me, I am happy to tell you, they still don't need to make an appointment. They have direct access. Uh, they have direct access. That is the first thing that Jesus is saying. And when we say the Lord's Prayer, we are declaring that is the relationship that we have with God. But the other critical word is the word our. Have you ever noticed this? That the Lord's Prayer doesn't say, my Father in heaven, give me my daily bread, forgive me my sins. The Lord's Prayer says, our Father, give us our daily bread, forgive us 
our sins. In fact, if you change the tense of the Lord's Prayer, not only does it destroy the meaning of the prayer, it actually becomes rather a nasty, selfish little prayer. Give me what I want. It's only because it's our that it is so revolutionary and so very beautiful. Which leads me to the other thing which I suspect may be causing difficulty for many of us floundering around on the first page of prayer, which is that we are trying to do something called private prayer. And the bad news I've got for you, or actually liberating good news, is that there is no such thing as private prayer. And since there is no such thing as private prayer, little wonder you're having difficulty trying to do it, because it doesn't exist. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is personal prayer and there is intimate prayer. But if, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, he said, our Father, then it shows us that prayer must be, cannot be, be otherwise than corporate. Let me tell you a little story to explain what I mean. When I was uh, first ordained, as a Viv is here from the, it's so nice to see Viv, uh, from the parish where I served my title. And so I thought I must tell a story about when I was the curate at Christchurch Forest Hill in South London in the early 1740s. It seems that long ago since <laughs> I'm. Um, and um, uh, so I am. Um, I, I was the curate there. We had a midweek Eucharist. This was, I think, a Wednesday evening in January on a cold, snowy evening. Um, uh, I think the parish priest was taking a post-Christmas break, so I'm the only priest serving in the parish at the time. I head up to the church to celebrate the 7.30 Eucharist. Um, I'm getting ready in the sacristy for the service to begin. There's only one, Pat Russell, only one person in the congregation, Pat. Now, normally, on a Wednesday evening, there was a little gaggle of people who came, but it was such a cold, snowy evening, Pat was the only person uh, in church. To her horror, at 29 minutes past seven, she realised, I'm the only one in the congregation, and felt a bit, you know, self-conscious about being the only one. So she made a dash for the vestry to sort of cut me off before the service began and said, I, I was Father Stephen in those days, not Bishop Stephen, said, oh, oh, Father Stephen, she said, don't worry just for me. <laughs> to which I replied, with a smile, I hope, Pat, whatever made you think I was doing this for you? <laughs> Um, because worship, prayer, um, is not just about us. And I think I said to her, you know, Jesus says, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst, there are two of us. And I said, and anyway, um, there might only be two of us, but the church is absolutely chock-a-block with the saints and the angels. You see, I believe that when we stop 
to consciously open our hearts and minds to God in prayer, we are not alone. Now, you, you might physically be alone. You might be on a remote desert island, thousands of miles from any other human contact, but you are not on your own. When you open your heart to God in prayer, there's a lot of other things going on. First of all, you are in solidarity with Christian people everywhere. There is a solidarity of prayer. Always, at any time, in any moment, there are you know, probably millions of other Christians also praying. And you're joining your voice with their voices, even though you can't see them or hear them. But more than that, the church says that it's not just the solidarity with the church on earth, it's the solidarity between the church on earth and the church in heaven. Don't we say this at every Eucharist? Or are these just words that have no meaning? Therefore, with angels and archangels and with the whole company of heaven, we believe in the communion of saints which is that the prayer on earth is united with the prayer in heaven. That is going on whenever we pray. I love the story of Austin Farrer, the great um, Anglican theologian um, uh, in Oxford, uh, who had a friend in the, same univer you know, in the same college as him who was, a bit of, who was an atheist, I think, um, but interested in architecture. Austin Farrer says to this person, oh, have you seen, I think it was St Barnabas's, have you seen the new church of St Barnabas that was opened last week? It's a you know, fantastic building. I'm sure you'll love it. I, I, I particularly like the angels in the rafters. Uh, so the friend goes along and sees the church and sees Austin Farrer the next day and says, um, yeah, I, I saw the church. It's, you know, it, is, it is a magnificent modern building, you know, fine piece of architecture. I'm a bit, bit mystified, though. I couldn't see any angels in the rafters. <laughs> so Austin Farrer, with a twinkle in his eyes, says, oh, yes, 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 I, 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 see, I see my mistake. When I said angels in the rafters, you thought I meant, you know, carved wooden angels or painted angels. He said, no, 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 no. I meant angels. So when we open our heart to God in prayer, there is the solidarity of just other Christians around the world. There is the prayer of the church in heaven. But more than that, um, the point that St Paul emphasises over and over again, particularly in the letter to the Galatians and the letter to the Romans, is that when we pray, it is the Holy Spirit praying in us. When we do not have the words to say, then the Holy Spirit groans and cries within us. What are the words the Holy Spirit calls us to say? If you remember the text, Abba, Father, the first words of the Lord's Prayer. And so, in other words, when you pray, you, you may not know what to say, you may not know what to do, you're just sitting there feeling, I don't really know, understand what this prayer thing is. There's so much going on. Now, the danger of me saying this is you're also probably now thinking, oh, well, just as we imagined, he said he was a beginner, but this sounds like a mountaintop experience if ever I heard one, you know, this kind of heavenly vision of the saints and the angels. No, no, I don't experience that. Now and again, now and again, as it were, the clouds part in life and one catches a glimpse um, of, of that heavenly vision. But no, the vast majority of the time that is not my experience. But I have found 
that knowing it and believing it has changed the way I pray. I no longer think that prayer is somehow uh, dependent upon my own efforts. You know, that I've got to somehow get the right formula, the right words, that I've got to concentrate hard enough to make it work. I've abandoned all that. I, I just know that my longing for God and my coming into the presence of God, however tentative, however faltering, however faithless, um, actually I'm then surrounded and supported by the saints and the angels, by my sister and by the Christians, and most of all, um, the Holy Spirit praying in me. In other words, if you want to put it in a nutshell, prayer is not so much what I say to God. It is what God says to me. It is God working God's stuff out in me. So that's only the first two words of the Lord's Prayer, and we're almost out of time. So we now go on to the rest of the Lord's Prayer. Again, to quote uh, Austin Farrer, Austin Farrer said, the rest of the Lord's Prayer, after the two first words, can be summed up as three hearty praises and three humble petitions. Three hearty praises and three humble petitions, and those praises and those petitions teach you everything else you need to know about prayer. Three hearty praises. Your name be holy. Your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. See, the, see, the trouble is that I think some Christians think that prayer is primarily about trying to change God's mind. And you could be forgiven for thinking that if you listen to other people's prayers. It's almost as if we think to ourselves, do you know what, if we could get enough signatures on the prayer petition, <laughs> do you know what, I think we could change God's mind on this one. But of course that can't be. That can't be what prayer Prayer is not about us trying to change God's mind. You know, God, in case you didn't, you know, read the newspapers this morning, you know, we're in a bit of a mess over Brexit, there's a lot of problems in the environment, there's, um, you know, Russia are attacking Ukraine. You know, God, come on. Um, uh, you know, the subtext is that we, of course, think that if we had the, you know, the resources uh, at our disposal that God has, we could do a much better job of running the universe. So, God, come on. Um, no, it's not about us changing God's mind. It is about God changing our minds. It's about constantly praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. So let me put it really provocatively to you. If, if that's what prayer is about, about allowing God to shape our heart, our mind, our will, then I would say this to you. Please, would you stop praying for world peace? Uh, please stop praying for the relief of poverty. Please stop praying for peace and for justice. Do not pray for these things unless you are prepared to be the answer to your own prayer, unless you are prepared to have your mind changed, your will shaped by God's will, um, able to truly work for God's kingdom to come. Otherwise, it isn't really prayer as the Lord's Prayer teaches us. 
And then you get the three humble petitions. Give us our daily bread. Uh, when I walked to Santiago um, uh, two years ago, um, the, the guidebook said, if you can, get your pack down to 10 kilograms. If you can, implying that you probably can't. When I weighed mine the day before I left, it was just over nine kilograms. And I was so pleased with myself, I thought, I'm really travelling light. Only nine kilograms of stuff. But after a few days of walking, I discovered that even my nine kilograms of stuff was too much stuff. I discovered that I had things that I didn't need. So I took, if you'll forgive me for being a bit personal, I took three pairs of socks, three pairs of knickers, and three shirts. And I discovered you only need two. Um, kind of wash one, wear one, wash one, wear one, wash one, wear one. It's all I needed. And it was a sobering experience, just for a month, to discover what I really need which is so much less than what I think I need. And at the heart of the Lord's Prayer is that radically challenging, humble petition about learning what is enough. Forgive us our sins. I think I want to say to our whole culture and, and even to the church, come back sin, all is forgiven. Um, <laughs> We simply don't talk about sin enough, do we? It's like I really would love to talk to you about death and heaven and hell, because we don't talk about those enough either. But invite me back next Advent We're on Advent themes. Um, because um, isn't this what the Christian faith is? Isn't this the heart of the Christian faith? So I, I put it to you very simply. Is there anybody here who has not regularly gone to bed looked back over the day and thought to themselves, why did I, why did I do that? Or, or why did I say the other? Or, or, or perhaps more likely, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I say that? It's often the missed opportunities, the sins of omission, which are the ones that trouble us the most. Now what does that mean? If that's true of pretty much, you know, every human being, I've not yet met a human being who doesn't, regularly think, goodness me, I should have done that, I, I shouldn't have said that. If that's true for every human being, what does that mean? Well, surely it means that we all fall short of our own standards. That's, that's what that means, doesn't it? We fall short of our own standards. Well, I simply want to add to that, well, if we all fall short of our own standards... How much do we fall short of the standards of God as they have been shown to us in Jesus Christ? And then this so-called difficult thing to talk about in our culture, sin, becomes actually quite an easy thing to talk about. It's something we're all aware of. And there is glorious help available. My brother is a, is a, a professor of psychiatry. And... Um, uh, and when we get together and perhaps have drunk quite a bit of whiskey and are being very honest with each other, um, there has been an occasion where he said to me, 
I mean, he, work, he's, he works in child psychiatry and he works with some very, very broken and damaged people. And uh, he said to me once, he said, when I'm dealing with people, people who are really hurting, he said, I know there's one thing that they need more than anything else. And it's the one thing I have no power to give them. And that is forgiveness. Most of all, he said, I find people who need to be forgiven. And so that is the great medicine of the gospel. And there can be no prayer that doesn't have at its heart penitence. A sober recognition of who we are and what we need. And then the third humble petition, uh, lead us not into temptation, save us from the time of trial. So what is prayer? Prayer is knowing that we are the beloved and that God loves us. And we try to make the whole of our life a prayer knowing that we have ready access to God who is like a mother, like a father. And we ask that God may shape the will and purpose of our life and to teach us simple things, necessary things, what is enough in life. Teach us to be sober and penitent and to save us. And there's all kinds of ways this prayer actually manifests itself. And then the best advice I can give to anyone is pray the way you can, not the way you can't. Find the way of prayer that works for you. There isn't a right way or a best way. There is the way that works for you. And the way that works for you changes as life changes. So the way that a busy working mum prays will be different from the way a retired person prays because circumstances are different. But one bit of practical advice I would give to everybody is weave prayer into the existing rhythms and routines of your daily life. So let go of the idea that prayer has to be this sort of holy half hour or holy five minutes carved out of the day. Instead, look at what you already do each day and build prayer into the rhythm. Because all of us have rhythms and routines in our lives. So if you walk the dog each day, then maybe walking the dog can be your time of prayer. And if you um, have a shower each morning, maybe that could be a time or a moment of prayer. If you get stuck in the same traffic jam on the way to work each day, don't close your eyes when you're praying for that bit. But, um, <laughs> or put your hands together. But... Um, but you can think about the rhythms and routines of your life. You know, too many people set themselves kind of impossible targets and then just feel a failure all the time. So look at what you're already doing. Um, I've written a book about prayer, which clearly is what everybody needs, um, uh, called How to Pray, and it really, really is a beginner's guide, but you may not have the money or the desire, still less the discipline to buy it. So I've... I've printed out one page from the book, which is called Ten Golden Rules, um, and uh, 
there's, there'll be a copy for... I'll just put it on the table here. There's a copy for everybody to take if they wish. I'm going to finish with a story. Then we can have some questions. And then at the end, I'll read you one more poem. So finally, a story. Um, and this story is about a bishop. And it's about a bishop uh, who was bishop of the... Uh, South Pacific. So his, his diocese contained lots and lots of remote islands and he went around his diocese by boat visiting all the different islands. One day he's sailing from one island to another and he notices an island which doesn't appear on the charts. And he thinks, oh, this is an, an undiscovered island. And as he looks at it through his telescope, he sees there's some smoke rising from the island indicating, um, you know, there's some sort of human habitation there. So he gets the captain of the boat to change course for this little never-before-seen never um, uh, uh, island. And the bishop, to be fair, is feeling quite excited because he thinks, I can be the very first person to bring the Christian faith to these islanders. Um, I will be the apostle to these islands. I will be the one to evangelise them. He's really feeling quite excited about this. He gets to the island, um, and as he, as, the, as he moors his boat, there are three fishermen sitting um, on the beach, mending their nets. He goes over to the fishermen and greets them and introduces himself and says that he has come to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ who is the hope and salvation of the world. And the fishermen say, well, it's lovely to see you, Your Grace, but, um, but we are already Christians. We are already followers of Jesus Christ. Well, the bishop, if truth were told, is a bit disappointed. Uh, <laughs> he was hoping they were Christians and that he could convert them, but he thinks, not, not to worry, it's not a wasted journey. Um, they're not part of the diocese. You know, we didn't even know they existed. Um, so he thinks, well, I can teach them about... The, obviously, he had nobody to teach them the Christian faith. He says, I can teach them about the Christian faith. So he says to them, well, let me... You know, now I'm here, let me instruct you in the Christian faith. Um, let me start by teaching you about prayer. W what do you know about prayer? And they said, oh, well, no, Bishop, we, we know about prayer. And he says, well, well, tell me, how do you pray? And they say to him, well, when we pray, we say... To God, you are three, we are three, have mercy upon us. That's how we pray. And the bishop says, well, that's not, that's not how you pray. Um, uh, uh, you know, that's a very in inadequate sort of prayer. He said, do you, do you not know, um, do you not know the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples? They said, no, no, they didn't. And he said, well this, well, this is terrible. He said, not to worry. He said, I will teach you. He said, this, this is the pattern and model of all prayer. When you know this prayer, you know everything there is to know about prayer. So he spent the day teaching them the Lord's Prayer, and they were simple, uneducated men and very, very slow learners. And it took all day for them to master and remember the Lord's Prayer. But at sunset, the bishop felt pleased with his day's work, bade them farewell, say he'd visit again one day, and set sail. Many years passed. Um, and again, the bishop is passing by this bit of his diocese, he sees this little island and he remembers fondly 
the day that he had taught these three fishermen how to pray properly. And as he's thinking this thing, uh, having these thoughts and looking towards the island, it's, it's the end of the day, the sun is setting, he sees a very, very bright light uh, shining on the island. And as he looks at this bright light, he sees the light appearing to come towards him over the water. And he looks in amazement and the light gets larger and larger and closer and closer and to his astonishment he sees that it is the three fishermen and they are radiant and they are walking on the water. And as they approach the boat, the three fishermen say, Bishop, Bishop, we saw your boat passing by and we had to come out to greet you. You remember that beautiful prayer that you taught us when you came to visit us? Yeah, yes, says the bishop. The prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples? Yes, says the bishop. Well, said the fisherman, we've forgotten it. <laughs> and the bishop says to the three fishermen, oh, my dear brothers, go back to your island and when you pray, this is what you must say. You are three. We are three. Have mercy upon us.